Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. This series features real conversations with real experts, real parents, and real educators, so families can get the real behind-the-scenes story on what's happening in education. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack that tell you everything that's happening at their school. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. I'm your co-host, Helen Westmoreland, Director of Family Engagement at National PTA. And I'm LaWanda Tony, your co-host and Director of Strategic Communications at National PTA. Today, we're going to talk about special education. Nearly 7 million students receive special education services. But what do these services actually look like? And how do we know if your child needs or qualifies for them? And as we speak, families everywhere are struggling with homeschooling and distance learning because of the coronavirus pandemic. So these challenges are even harder for families who have children with special needs, many of whom may not even have access to the resources they need because of school closures. Luckily, today's expert guest is going to walk us through the ins and outs of the special education system and how families can get the resources they need during COVID-19. Today, we're welcoming Ms. Deborah Jennings to the podcast. Deborah serves as the Executive Director of the Statewide Parent Advocacy Network, a nonprofit organization committed to working with parents and professionals to achieve education rights for all children. For more than 15 years, Deborah has worked with schools, parents, and communities to develop grassroots initiatives. Deborah's leadership has supported grassroots parenting advocacy organizations throughout the years with a focus on special education issues. Deborah is also a mother of two daughters. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. We're interested just to hear a little bit about how you got started in this type of work and what makes you passionate about it. Hi, everyone. And I just want to say that I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to this audience because this audience is really where I got started. Just like many of you, I am a public school parent. And I guess at this point, I should say I was a public school parent. And I started in this work because I was concerned about some of the things that were going on with my own child. She was in the second grade. She wasn't reading and I wasn't getting any really good answers. And so, like many of us, I started asking more and more questions and going further and further up that chain of command to find out what's going on. As I moved up and asked questions of teachers, of principals, of superintendents and various directors, I found that in particular for students who were struggling readers, that there wasn't a really good system or program or really good understanding of even what teachers needed. I started talking to more parents, finding out that more parents were having the same struggles and started a grassroots organization here in my community and later on was elected to be the co-president of our district's PTA council and basically was doing then for nothing what I now do for peanuts. <laughs> I joined SPAN 
it was 1997. So it's almost 23 years ago. Great. Thank you again for chatting with us. We want to talk a little bit about special education services. Right now, with the schools being shut down, special education services may mean a lot of different things to different people. Can you provide us kind of an overview of the different kinds of special education services that are offered? So special education services for students with disabilities are really guided by the individual education program that is developed Mm -hmm. for each student. And in order Mm -hmm. to have that program developed, the student would first be identified as having a disability. If the student is struggling in school, the student may have a health challenge or developmental delay. So first, identifying that that student is potentially eligible for special education services. There's a series of assessments or evaluations to help to determine what might be the kinds of programs, supports, accommodations, and services that might help that student to be successful in education. After that evaluation, that's when what's called the IEP or Individual Education Program team gets together, and it's through that team that decisions are made about what that student's program should look like. So in that discussion about supports and programs, there are a lot of different types of supports that can be offered to students. There also may be what are called modifications. Those modifications might be related to scheduling in terms of how much time a student has on an assignment or taking breaks, say, during tests, or actually how much time they have to complete tests. Another modification might be in terms of the setting, where students can work in a small group, or they might need to work one-on-one with the teacher. That's another kind of a modification. We also look for modifications in terms of the materials. Now, particularly with technology, there's a lot of opportunities for audio books and for print materials being in Braille and also digital text where the text can be read to the student. And then there are also modifications in terms of instruction where it may be that the assignment has to be read to the student or the assignment has to be changed in terms of the reading level of the student. Another modification might be in the way that students provide their responses to the work. Sometimes a student may provide their responses in writing or they may dictate it. Students who are visually impaired may have instruction materials that are in Braille. It should be noted that if a student's native language is not English, that the instruction would be provided in their native language because we do have Uh, quite a few students who are English language learners and receiving special education services. Thank you for that overview. I want to ground us in some of the here and now with the pandemic. So you're working with probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of families who were receiving these modifications prior to school closures What are you hearing from them now, and how are you seeing districts respond to be able to provide those modifications during closures? That's a really good question. Here in New Jersey, we're in week three 
of school closure or what's called school closure, Mm -hmm. but education continues. And what we are finding, and I have to say a lot of the issues have been resolved, but there's still a lot of challenges. So first of all, what we found was that those modifications and accommodations that students were accustomed to in their face-to-face educational programs were either one, not communicated to the parent in a way that the parent could help to support Mm. the student and offer the modifications in terms of setting or reading to them, etc. Parents were given written instructions and some were given written instructions in English when their native language was not English. We found that the instructions that families were getting were not necessarily at a reading level that the parents could actually understand. They tended to still be in essentially education speak. And then another Mm. aspect of special education is what we call related services. So those are those services like occupational therapy and speech therapy and counseling. Right. Can those be done remotely? Or is that something that is on hold with so many people's lives on hold? What are you seeing? What we're seeing there is that I think many of the states and the districts are really trying to get organized around how to provide those services virtually. Mm -hmm. There are some states that already had some infrastructure in place for that. But in other states, things like telehealth or teleservices done virtually were Mm -hmm. actually specifically not recognized as being a replacement for the related services under an IEP. We found that states are really scurrying to put into place the kinds of regulations and guidance that districts need in order to implement those related services. As you can imagine, even in terms of what instruction looks like, it's different from district to district because some schools are offering virtual instruction, which is live, where you're sitting in a class with a teacher Mm -hmm. on the screen. But many are being instructed through Google Classroom or other kinds of platforms where the student arrives in their course and then they have materials that they review and they have videos of the teaching to look at, but it's really done without that direct interaction. I think many of the districts are getting better in terms of the direction that they're giving teachers as far as communicating with students about assignments, checking in on students to see if they're having any challenges, and really making that a part of the delivery of instruction. Yeah, for parents who have kids who were on a IEP, but their school hasn't yet reached out to them about their particular services, should they be reaching out to the school? Absolutely. Going from a live classroom setting to a virtual classroom, even without talking about the related services, etc. But going from that setting of the live classroom into the virtual classroom, that would be considered to be a change in placement. And under IDEA, mm-hmm. when there is a change of placement, that requires an IEP team conversation. So we are encouraging families 
to request IEP meetings, IEP team meetings. And mm-hmm. many of the school districts are getting guidance from their state that says that, yes, even though schools are closed, you are required to respond as to whether or not an IEP meeting is needed or required. There are places mm-hmm. where those IEP meetings have begun to be offered virtually just to talk about what's happening in terms of placement to talk about what needs to happen as far as modifications and accommodations and also to talk about getting some of those tele or virtual related services and what those may look like and what will be their effectiveness for their students. Right. Thank you. That's very good advice that don't necessarily wait for the district to get to you. If you haven't heard, go ahead and make that request for a meeting and you're entitled to it. I want to shift gears a little bit to the beginning of the process. We're talking about the experience of families who already have some of these services in place. And you mentioned, Deborah, even from your own experience, realizing that your child wasn't necessarily reading on level and starting to ask questions. And I think now with many families playing the role of teacher, crisis teacher at home, they might be seeing or wondering things about how their kids are learning that they wouldn't have necessarily seen before. Could you tell us a little bit about what families should be looking for if they think that their child might benefit from special education services? One of the things that I recognized early on was that as much of a change and as much of a disruption as this is, that the opportunity to be your child's teacher and to see what kind of work they're doing in school really Mm -hmm. makes that process so much more transparent Mm -hmm. than we're accustomed to. Parents are learning a lot about what their child is being taught and also about what their child knows. I think that one thing is in terms of looking at, first of all, the work that their child is being assigned and comparing it to what the state's standards are. You can find your state standards for every grade for all of the major subject areas on your state's website. And we're essentially at the end of the year, right? So if your child is in third grade, you go and you find the third grade expectations, your child should pretty much be there by April. And if you see that your child is struggling, then the first thing that you do is reach out to the teacher. One of the things that I am reminding our partners who are educators and school districts and even our state directors is that this is actually one of the best times to engage parents in their students' learning. So let's take advantage of that Mm -hmm. and make sure that we're communicating two-way communication as it is outlined in the PTA standards, but make sure that we have that (laughs) two-way communication going on. So reach out to the teacher Mm -hmm. first and ask them, how is my child doing and where are they in terms of meeting those standards? And what do we, that's the teacher and the parent, what do we need to do in order for them to achieve those standards. 
Now, the teacher may have noticed some things themselves and maybe hadn't brought them up. I think the teacher is the best first source because once you notice something, the teacher is the best person to ask. And then if the teacher's response is, well, we're going to need to provide the student with a lot more intensive instruction, then that gives us a little bit of an indication of maybe we should ask for the evaluation. And you can write to your director of special education or even your principal and request an evaluation for eligibility for special education services. That will start the communication and that'll start the teamwork. So, Ms. Jennings, I had a similar situation where you're talking about starting the process. My son goes to public school. He's in the first grade. And I just noticed he had some fluency issues starting maybe a year or two before. He was having a hard time getting words out, stumbling a bit. But I noticed once he was in the first grade, it was still present. I reached out to the school, actually just sent a note to the principal saying, hey, do you have access to a speech pathologist? I was just curious more than anything. And he was like, yeah, we have one on site. And then I explained the situation with Caleb and he said, let's set up a IEP meeting. But when he said that, I was like, oh, no, I don't want a bunch of people. I don't know if this is I don't want to make a big deal out of it. But he and the vice principal really calmed me and said, no, this is a part of the process. And we sat in a room, my husband and I, with Caleb's teacher, with the speech pathologist and the vice principal and the counselor. And it gave us a full picture of his classroom and what he's been doing. Because the first thing they wanted us to figure out together was, is his fluencing preventing him to reach certain milestones in the classroom? It was the best meeting that I ever had because it gave <laughs> me such a sense of what he's doing in the classroom. And being there, they asked me a lot of questions that I didn't even know I had the answer to about how I wanted him treated during this process. And the things that I told them were like, I don't want this to disrupt his free time. I don't want him to feel like recess is taken away from him to do that because I don't want the things that he enjoys to be taken away to do this. And they were very receptive to that and open and created a plan that we all felt good about. I would just say definitely reach out, like you said, talk to the teacher, find out what resources are available and what that means. Now may be a perfect opportunity to have those one-on-one conversations that you may not have the time and ability to have prior to the crisis. And Lawanda, that's almost exactly the experience that I had with my second daughter. And just so that you know, she graduated with over a 3.5 GPA from the University of Delaware, and she's now in a master's program. And she started out with Mm -hmm. an IP in second grade and with speech services. And the big thing is the confidence, because if you're struggling and you don't address it by the time a child is about eight years old, then often that learning challenge turns into a behavior challenge. And once it turns Mm -hmm. into behavior challenge, Mm -hmm. it's so much more difficult to address. Mm. Both of you, I'm listening and just hearing that 
you maybe were a little hesitant at first, but you went with the process. And I think this brings up such an interesting point about the stigma of special education or having a quote unquote disability. What, Deborah, would you say to parents who might be like, I don't want my child to be labeled? I mean, that is real. I think part of it is that there's a perception that all students with disabilities tend to have the same disabilities. Mm. The numbers of students who receive special education services that are not necessarily obvious, I'll put it that way, that are not in the segregated, self-contained classrooms, that are not in the segregated schools, that just are traveling through their school day and maybe for 15 minutes or a period getting services in a resource room or getting services in the speech department. There's such a individualization that happens in special education, especially if the parent is a member of the IEP team and has the say in terms of what that child's program is going to look like. If you think of the IEP process as something that they're going to do to you or do to your child, then yeah, that's really hard to swallow. But if you think of yourself as part of the team, and as LaWanda said, I'm going to learn a lot about what is available. I'm going to get some information about how the process works and the things that I should be asking for. It puts a whole different spin on having a child identify for special education services. Yeah, I think a lot of parents need to hear that, that it's about how you participate in the process. I think that helps to make it less overwhelming and less scary, because I think that's what it is, just the fear of the unknown. Yes. Ms. Jennings, you shared so much great information with us, so much valuable information that I hope will help a lot of parents that are home. And this will end. This will be over. The crisis will be over, and then we're back to school as normal. And I hope that these tips and resources and things that you provided will be an additional help to them once kids return back to school. So thank you for joining us today. So are there any resources available for parents that you might suggest? Yes, I would suggest that parents visit our website for the Center for Parent Information and Resources. And that web address is parentcenterhub.org. We've put together a great collection of resources around the coronavirus and working with your schools. And then we also have a lot of resources that can help you in terms of navigating the special education process, even in our normal context. You can also follow us on social media and you can post questions there too. And we'll have one of our staff get back to you or we'll share with you information about the Parent Training and Information Center that serves your state and your community. That's great. What are your social media handles and where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Our social media handles for Facebook and Twitter is at Parent Center Hub. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. So everyone, that concludes today's episode of Notes from the Backpack. But before you go, please be sure to check out our website, notesfromthebackpack.com, and use the social media tag, hashtag backpacknotes, to stay in the know. Thanks again for tuning in. 
Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.